Section 1 of Charles II. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Charles II by Osmond Airy. Chapter 1. Prince of Wales. Part 1. The boy who was born to Charles I and Henrietta Maria in St. James Palace at one o'clock on the afternoon of May 29, 1630, found himself at once a most important person. He was not their firstborn. He came to console them for the disappointment of the previous year, when another son, also called Charles, had been, as an old print in the British Museum tells us, born, baptized, and buried the same day the most august portents accompanied the event the whole frame of nature so runs the new icon basilicae takes notice of sovereign births and compliments them with stars meteors flames thunders and earthquakes such honour have all his anointed as charles i rode to st paul's to give thanks for the safe delivery of the queen all eyes were turned to the planet venus which happened to be a morning star near its greatest brilliancy and easily visible in full daylight to behold this babe heaven seemed to open one eye more than usual the time was one of intense credulity and philosophers divines and lawyers positively battened upon the unusual phenomenon from which most men presaged that that prince should be of high undertakings and of no common glory among kings Edmund Waller laid it down that this agreement of day and night was a sign that the newcomer was born to reconcile the divided world. The poetasters throughout the kingdom went loose, and 148 printed poems in Greek, Latin, and French testified to the loyalty of Oxford. Cambridge was unfortunately so afflicted with the plague that she took no notice of either the birth or the portents, and thereby gave great offence to the king another token of celestial interest which was afforded two days later an almost total eclipse of the sun was less susceptible of a satisfactory interpretation and only two effusions are extant to break the judicious silence the birth of charles the second meant however much more than pleasure to his parents or a subject for loyal verse the great controversy of modes of political and religious thought had already begun in earnest and in this he had from the moment of his birth to take an important though unconscious part in spain and other catholic countries the most extravagant joy was displayed the fervent catholicism of henrietta was well known and it was believed that without much objection from her husband her son would be allowed to imbibe the true faith and so at madrid the king queen and all the court were in bravery nor so much as the young infant of so many months old but had his feather on his cap all the town full of masks and music the heads of the clergy and all the religious houses in the city came to the ambassador to congratulate him and solemn masses and prayers were said for his health and prosperity everywhere very different was the feeling among foreign protestants while to the puritans at home the disappointment was great and the prospect eminently ungrateful the prolonged childlessness of charles i had given them hope 
that there would eventually be an escape from the Stuart policy and from the favour shown to Catholicism in the succession of the devout and much-loved sister of the king, Elizabeth, Queen of Bohemia. God, they said, had already better provided for us than we had deserved, whereas it is uncertain what religion the king's children will follow, being to be brought up under a mother so devoted to the Church of Rome. But that hope was now gone, and they soon had cause to think that their fears were better founded. On the very day of the birth, the king announced that Lady Roxburgh was to be his governess, a Catholic and a Scotchwoman, who had brought about the conversion of the child's grandmother, Anne of Denmark, and it was only in ungracious compliance with the urgent protests of his advisers that he finally appointed Lady Dorset, an Englishwoman and a Protestant. Amid all these anticipations and searchings of heart, the boy was baptized by Laud on June 27th at the King's Chapel of St. James. The King of France and the Palgrave, Catholic and Protestant, and the Queen Mother of France being sponsors. From his mother herself, who in quite a human way was concerned with him, just then as her baby, and not as the hope of Catholicism, we learn what sort of baby he was. Whatever qualities he derived from his parents, he belied the relationship in his looks. The king was a handsome man. The queen was allowed even by the severest detractor of her own sex to have beautiful eyes, a well-shaped nose, and an admirable complexion. In neither of them, if Van Dyke may be trusted, was the hair dark. But the mother in her fond way testifies frankly to the child's harsh features and southern swarthiness. He seems indeed to have been a reversion to a far bygone Provencal type. As soon as she could use the pen, Henrietta thus described him to her former governess, Madame de Motteville, he is so ugly that I am ashamed of him, but his size and features supply the want of beauty. I wish you could see the gentleman, for he has no ordinary mien. He is so serious in all that he does that I cannot help deeming him far wiser than myself. And a little later, he is so fat and so tall that he is taken for a year old and he is only four months. His teeth are already beginning to come. I will send you his portrait as soon as he is a little fairer, for at present he is so dark that I am ashamed of him. But she had to bear with her black baby, for black he remained, and as for good looks, odds fish, he himself ejaculated forty years afterwards, when shown his picture, I am an ugly fellow. And if to his father the perfect horseman, and to his mother the beautiful dancer, we may assign much of the dignified ease of carriage which he kept to his death, his charm of voice, and his grace in the ballroom, the peculiar gifts and frailties by which he succeeded where others failed, and failed where others succeeded, were eminently his own. From first to last we find no trace of the fervent religious feeling which gave to Charles I the power to die nobly for a cause, no reserve or sobriety of thought in life, no unselfishness nor high purpose, no regal magnanimity. But he had other qualities which secured for him, on a lower plane, a life which we feel was as satisfactory to himself as it was for the most part ill and wastefully spent. 
his vigorous constitution and invariable good health allowed him to indulge without physical discomfort and to the end of his days in the inordinate pleasures of an oriental debauchery his power of imagination his intuitive perception of character his faculty of statecraft enabled him to gauge the strength or weakness of a position the worthiness or frailty of an adherent and to slip by difficulties which it was inconvenient to meet his love of banter never lacked material and his saving grace of humour enabled him to extract amusement from the most distressful condition the graceful familiarity which was natural to him from childhood and the address and tact which served to conceal or to excuse a selfishness which nobler feelings were seldom allowed to violate and an habitual ingratitude which matched the ingratitude that sacrificed strafford were so useful to him that it was a saying that he could send away a person better pleased at receiving nothing than those in the good king his father's time that had requests granted them so different was father and son in their humour and carriage how all these varied sources of strength and weakness were fostered and developed by his early training will be seen as the life unfolds for the moment we are in the nursery and still in the presence of portents we are told though the authority is weak for a matter of this importance that when he was but very young he had a very strange and unaccountable fondness to a wooden billet without which in his arms he would never go abroad or lie down in his bed from which the more observing sort of people gathered that when he came to years of maturity either oppressors or blockheads would be his greatest favourites or else that when he came to reign he would either be like jupiter's log for everybody to deride and condemn or that he would rather choose to command his people with a club than rule them by the sword but the days of dolls and the nursery his official nurse was mrs wyndham with whom we shall meet again were soon over at his birth he had been declared prince of wales and earl of chester and now at eight years of age he was knighted received into the order of the garter and installed with the usual ceremonies at windsor the king committed his education to william cavendish earl of newcastle a favourite of the queen and to brian duppa who died bishop of winchester shortly after the restoration both appointments were unexceptionable newcastle was the most prominent grandee of the kingdom his fortune was princely his bearing stately and dignified his character unstained his intellect respectable a very fine gentleman says clarendon active and full of courage and most accomplished in those qualities of horsemanship dancing and fencing which accompany a good breeding besides that he was amorous of poetry and music in which he indulged the greatest part of his time he loved monarchy as it was the foundation and support of his own greatness and the church as it was well constituted for the splendour and security of the crown and religion as it cherished and maintained that order and obedience that was necessary to both to brian duppa was entrusted the more literary side of the boy's training a man of excellent parts and every way qualified for his function especially as to the comeliness of his person and gracefulness of his deportment which rendered him worthy the service of a court 
and every way fit to stand before princes newcastle in writing to the boy himself bore eloquent testimony to his colleague's worth your tutor sir wherein you are most happy since he hath no pedantry in him his learning he makes right use of neither to trouble himself with it or his friends reads men as well as books the purity of his wit doth not spoil the serenity of his judgment and in a word strives as much discreetly to hide the scholar in him as other men's follies studies to show it and is a right gentleman such a one as man should be duppa's temper seems to have been singularly sweet and while exercising no commanding influence upon charles he evidently gained like newcastle the boy's respect and affection many years later when duppa lay dying at richmond charles then restored king knelt at his old tutor's side to ask his blessing in the charge of newcastle and duppa and with the two sons of buckingham so graciously depicted by van dyke charles's earliest youth passed pleasantly away newcastle's instructions to the boy himself have fortunately been preserved and they are of extreme interest when compared with the elaborate letter of advice which he felt it his duty to hand to his sovereign on his coming into possession of the crown and which will be dealt with in its proper place they run thus in their strange mixture of mature wisdom and limited sympathies and it may easily be imagined that in their negative aspect at any rate they carried with them their own recommendations to his pupil for your education sir it is fit you should have some languages though i confess i would rather have you study things than words matter than language for seldom a critic in many languages hath time to study sense for words and at best he is or can be but a living dictionary besides i would not have you too studious for too much contemplation spoils action and virtue consists in that what you read i would have it history and the best chosen histories that so you might compare the dead with the living for the same humours is now as was then there is no alteration but in names for the arts i would have you know them so far as they are of use and especially those that are most proper for war and use but whensoever you are too studious your contemplation will spoil your government for you cannot be a good contemplative man and a good commonwealth's man therefore take heed of too much book charles is to beware of too much devotion for a king for one may be a good man but a bad king and how many will history represent to you that in seeming to gain the kingdom of heaven have lost their own and the old saying is that short prayers pierce the heaven's gates this subject however newcastle leaves to the right reverend father in god lord bishop of chichester your worthy tutor contenting himself with pointing out that if the king does not show a becoming reverence at prayers his example will encourage irreverence to himself on the part of his less devout subjects while of the other side if any be bible mad overmuch burnt with fiery zeal they may think it a service to god to destroy you and say the spirit moved them and bring some example of a king with a hard name in the old testament thus one way you may have a civil war the other a private treason and he that cares not for his own life is master of another man's for books thus much more the greatest clerks are not the wisest men and the great troublers of the world 
the greatest captains were not the greatest scholars neither have i known bookworms great statesmen but sir you are in your own disposition religious and not very apt to your book so you need no great labour to persuade you to the one or long discourses to dissuade you from the other the things that i have discoursed to you most is to be courteous and civil to everybody set to make difference of cabbages and believe it the putting off of your hat and making a leg pleases more than reward or preservation so much doth it take all kind of people then to speak well of everybody and when you hear people speak ill of others reprehend them and seem to dislike it so much as do not look on them favourably for a few days after and say something in favour of those that have been spoken against the other which is railing scorn and jeering is fitter for porters watermen and carmen than for gentlemen how much more then for a prince whose dislike is death and kills any subject to lose your dignity and set by your state i do not advise you to that but the contrary for what preserves you kings more than ceremony the cloth of estates the distance people are with you great officers heralds drums trumpeters rich coaches rich furniture for horses guards martial men making room disorders to be laboured by their staff of office and cry now the king comes the king must know at what time to play the king and when to qualify it but never put it off for in all triumphs whatsoever or public showing yourself you cannot put upon you too much king yet even there sometimes a chat or a smile in the right place will advantage you to women you cannot be too civil especially to great ones what hurt were it to send them a dish from your table when you dine with some of your great lords and to drink their health certainly sir you cannot lose by courtesy i mean not you should be so familiar as to bring you to contempt for i mean you should keep yourself up prince still and in all your actions but i would not have you so seared with majesty as to think that you are not of mankind nor suffer others or yourself to flatter you so much the incommodities to life and the sustaining of it and the same things the meanest do you must do the like or not live these things when you are pleased to think of them will persuade you that you are of the lump of man and mortal and the more you repeat these thoughts the better prince you'll be i mean not by repeating your mortality to have a death's head set always before you or to cry every morning that you are mortal for i would not have you fall into a divine melancholy to be an anchoret or a capuchin or with a philosophical discourse to be a diogenes in your tub but to temper yourself so by this means as to be a brave noble and just king and make your name immortal by your brave acts abroad and your unspotted justice at home qualified by your well temper and mercy to take heed of too much book to beware of too much devotion to be courteous especially to women not to be an anchoret or a capuchin or a diogenes in your tub these were instructions of easy remembrance and application for the rest the brave noble and just king we shall see newcastle kept his charge for three years and in his lordly way performed his duties well what he had to give he gave the boy 
who became like himself an adept writer fencer and dancer with a love of music they were evidently fond of one another and the relations are pleasantly shown as are the bonhomie the gift of banter the courteous familiarity and the lightness of touch which served charles so well through life in a few words of copy-hand written between pencil lines ruled for him by peter massenet his french writing-master the occasion was a critical one the boy had declined to take his physic and the gorgeous earl of newcastle had been driven to call in the only person of whom charles seems to have stood in awe we can imagine the humorous grimace with which he surrendered his caprice to his mother's brief commands charles i am sore that i must begin my first letter with chiding you because i hear you will not take physic i hope it was only for this day and that to-morrow you will do it for if you will not i must come to you and make you take it for it is for your health i have given order to my lord newcastle to send me word to-night whether you will or will not therefore i hope you will not give me the pains to go and so i rest your affectionate mother to my dear son the prince henriette marie regina end of section one